Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Andy Poe about his book titled Political Enthusiasm, Partisan Feeling and Democracy's Enchantments, published by Manchester University Press in 2022, um, which is a really interesting book that looks at this thing called political enthusiasm. Um, And in some senses, I definitely came to this kind of going, hmm, those things seem, political enthusiasm seems like a bad idea, right? The kind of the mob running wild, etc. And so I learned a ton from this book. And it really um, helped me kind of think in a much more nuanced way about how enthusiasm relates to democratic politics. Um, So I'm really excited to welcome you, Andy, to the podcast to tell us more about your book. Thanks, Miranda. Uh, I'm super excited to be here. Um, I'm glad to have the chance to think about how else enthusiasm could be besides the the sort of monster that that plagues democracy so i i think you you did a lot of that in the book and so hopefully we'll be able to cover at least some of it the highlights perhaps um in the interview but before we get there i i would love it if you could start us off by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book sure So I am an associate professor at ACU, Australian Catholic University in Sydney, um, and I teach social and political theory there. This book uh, sort of came out of um, my dissertation project. Uh, In a way, this is the book, the first book project that Uh, I suspect most academics would warn colleagues not to write. That is, I set out to write a dissertation about enthusiasm and and its origins, how it came about, and how this this anxiety about enthusiasm and democratic politics came about. Uh, and, And that was the work of the dissertation, very much sort of looking back into ancient sources, uh, thinking through ways in which uh, the modern West had started to become uh, caught up with and concerned about enthusiasm in the modern period. And and when I finished the dissertation, I thought that, well, that, that was exciting. That was great to work on. Um, but I want to write a book about like enthusiasm now. I want to write a book about what happened to enthusiasm after it became political and the ways in which it's transformed democratic politics since then and, and how it appeared and disappeared and, and worked its way into democratic life. And, and so in, in, in short, the, the dissertation became the, the ground by which the book could grow from, but they, they were not identical projects. Uh, so it meant a lot of sort of cultivating my thinking that had come out of that dissertation to begin with. Uh, That was exciting to do. Um, It meant that I had the chance to begin to ask myself sort of critical questions about why we might be concerned with enthusiasm and and what had happened to this phenomena. But um, it meant a lot of sort of reimagining and and engaging in a sort of self-critique of my own enjoyment of this thing enthusiasm to begin with so it, it was sort of a twisted path to to come about but but i hope in a way those twists and turns make it for the kind of reading that doesn't just sort of deposit information about enthusiasm but both presents it and sort of stirs it in a way in the reader if mm. that makes sense it, it does make sense and i think um certainly hearing that kind of trajectory of how the book came to be um, really kind of explains how the book does such a good job of covering a lot of the history and explaining that it's not just history. It's not just kind of this happened in this year and then this happened in that year. It's very much you show an evolving debate and discussion um, over quite a long period of time 
but not somehow separated from our conversations now. Um, and I think that was a really effective thing that allowed it to be kind of something that stirs up in your brain because you're not just kind of going, oh, well, this is an interesting historical thing, but it has no impact on me. It's like, oh, wait a second. This is all kind of a part of this continuum. Um, and these threads do continue and are woven together. Um, and there isn't this kind of artificial separation between the debates we have now about kind of how the internet plays into enthusiasm or whatever, and sort of what, you know, <laughs> a few hundred years ago or even further back were debating around enthusiasm and its role in politics. Right. Yeah, that, that I mean, it sounds like you're reading me perfectly clearly. I mean, there's a way in which um, when this project first started, it enthusiasm wasn't really being talked about a lot. That is like in this post 9-11 period before Obama, before we saw a sort of rise of protest movements and, and all sorts of figurations of um, encountering politics in the street. Before that happened, there, there was more often than not sort of a rising tide of apathy, at least within the United States and sort of maybe more broadly in, in some of the Western democracies. And, and really, that was my concern, just this anxiety I started to have in myself of the ways in which apathy could sort of hold democracy hostage to itself, that it could, in a way, create a fabric where democratic citizens and, and members of democratic polities found themselves sort of unwilling to, to commit to, to radical transformation. It's strange then to sort of watch how, as, as history has unfurled in, in the past 10 years, as the book was coming into being, uh, I sort of had to grapple with that transformation. And I mean, apathy certainly rises in new ways uh, and ebbs and flows in the same way that I think, or at least it, in in concert with enthusiasm, probably. Uh, but it, it's apathy is much harder to see today, at least in the United States, than 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 forms of sort of democratic excitement. So, um, yeah, it was it was it's been a, it's been nice to see that transformation. But I think the thing you're pointing to that's so important to me about the book. And especially uh, as the project has changed, what's maintained throughout has been my interest in the idea of the sort of performance of enthusiasm. That is the way in which certain democratic feelings uh, maintain themselves, not as projections, but through the political action. And enthusiasm in particular seems like uh, one of those political affects that it's important for us to pay attention to, not as a, a structure which can be prescribed, but rather as that which allows us to identify the performance of or the activity of a certain kind of political life. So then before we get into some of kind of the details that we're sort of teasing out, I suppose, um, would you mind kind of, given that it is so key to um, kind of what you're talking about and what you're observing and helping us understand, um, could you help us just precisely define sort of what, when we say enthusiasm in this context, what do we actually mean and what is political enthusiasm? Sure. So, um, I mean, enthusiasm has has this sort of long and complicated history. So when we talk about it on its own, I think we tend to mean things generally like a sort of passionate excitement for a cause or, or a feeling um, of intense commitment. But I mean, more than anything, from my perspective, it's it's a positive feeling of, of being attached to um, attached to a kind of unity that appears through activity. So that could sound, I mean, that could sound abstract, but it could also sound a little bit like 
I'm describing positive liberty. So we could say that enthusiasm maybe is the feeling that would allow us to identify we were in positive liberty. That is, we were feeling free because we were attached to others. But, but I think enthusiasm, sort of without it being in the political, certainly it can have that attachment that one has for freedom, but I think it also would equally be associated with religious awe, the sort of feeling one has in, in association with the mysteries of divinity. And, and really, I think the early discourse around enthusiasm on its own sort of points to, to that language. We see, I mean, in its Greek root, enthusiasmos, this idea of being possessed by a god, that enthusiasm has much of that history sort of built into it as um, as a word, but also as a phenomena. That religious context sort of hovers around the affect and its history um, until we sort of move into the Enlightenment. And there we start to see uh, a sort of new imagining for what enthusiasm could be. And in this sense, enthusiasm moves away from its religious context uh, and the various myriad of associations that come from that and, and into a sort of political fabric. And, and in this way, I mean that it becomes something that gets associated with political behavior. That is, one could refer to revolutionaries as enthusiasts. But it also becomes sort of politicized and politicizing, meaning it becomes an affect that all sorts of thinkers start to associate with a kind of political behavior and a kind of way of being in politics. And, and it's that shift from what, what looks like a sort of apolitical account of enthusiasm that appears in poetic discourse or in, in mental health discourse. Um, it's, and it's a shift from that into the sort of way in which some people are characterized as being political that, that was really motivating me and I think can help us see a shift in how enthusiasm starts to become political. In a sense, in the same way that democracy starts to become what it is in, in a sort of language game that it's cast on us by by its enemies, that is the first people who would use the word democracy were, were using it as a joke to criticize people who thought they could participate in the, the sharing of, of power or the exchange of power. In the same way that democracy has that history in its word, I think enthusiasm also sort of starts to appear as as language that one casts upon one's enemy. And, and a lot of Scottish Enlightenment thinkers uh, and and folks in in the sort of early history of liberalism seem quite concerned with the ways in which enthusiasm might might take hold and and it's that anxiety that began to fascinate me and and finding ways of seeing whether or not there was any potentiality in in actualizing what that anxiety was trying to name that the book is really trying to move us towards. Got it. Thank you for explaining and the, the evolution of it. I think I certainly wasn't hadn't really thought of the religious aspect um, of the term. And yet, as soon as you kind of made that clear, it was like, oh, interesting. That probably, you know, the idea of awe-inspiring or sort of ecstasy um, kind of then it does show that there are like tinges of it when we talk about it in terms of politics now, this, this sort of fear of being overcome by something, um, which is really interesting. And so I was quite um, sort of taken by the fact that in the book, you talk about your reading of enthusiasm, enthusiasm as being specifically post-secular. 
Um, so in this context of kind of the religious trajectory and sort of that that um, history, I suppose, the baggage almost of it, um, could you kind of tell us about your reading of it being post-secular and sort of the significance of that take? Yeah, so, I mean... A lot of a lot of what's driving the book in in broad strokes is trying to not let enthusiasm sort of fall into the dyads that had trapped it before. So, if enthusiasm was thought to be the sort of alternative to rationality or the alternative to rational discourse by by some Scottish Enlightenment folks, then um, it was the sort of it was the name one gave to the behavior of one's enemy, and and we see that sort of characterization appearing in all sorts of contexts. So um, we could imagine uh, we could imagine Protestant critiques of of Catholics and their enthusiasm. We could imagine um, a sort of uh, anti-Semitic critique um, of enthusiastic behavior. We could imagine um, ways in which enthusiasm gets um, attached to mob-like political engagements. And, And this negative association often ended up meaning for many that Enthusiasm was was this bad way of being in the world, this bad way of being religious, this bad way of being um, rational, this bad way of, of being oneself, this bad way of being political. And and in at some level, the the secular anxiety around enthusiasm um, starts to allow it to become something um, that revolutionary political actors begin to hold on to. That is, rather than it being the alternative to political rationality, we start to see in the in the 17th and, and 18th century um, an effort to utilize enthusiasm, to, to be enthusiastic in one's commitment to political change. And and so there, the dyad is still preserved, um, where there's a secular critique of um, the enthusiastic. But but out of that critique, we start to see um, certain people who might attach themselves with the secular project then adopt this framework. Kant, in particular, is an important figure in the shift because while he himself has so many anxieties about enthusiasm, there's a way of reading part of his work that shows us that at least at times he found a way for it to become part of an important political project. And it's that sort of back and forth that, that I think becomes really interesting, especially in what we might think of as Kant's inheritors. Like another way of thinking about the book isn't just that it's a story about what happened to enthusiasm once it became political, but in particular, what happened to enthusiasm as it became political in, in this particular framework of, of Kant and, and his inheritors. And, and I'm especially interested in what we might think of as his sort of radical inheritors. So reading people like Arendt, who, who is more normally associated with Kant, but also reading someone like Walter Benjamin or Jacques Rancière as, as themselves inheritors of this Kantian um, excitement for the possibility of, of an enthusiasm that spreads beyond these sort of good and bad or, or dyadic frames. Um, does, it, does, that, does that make sense? That is, it's moving enthusiasm in a way that doesn't give up on the sort of religious force that it may be originated with, uh, but it allows it to sort of reside in political fabrics um, as something more than just in, in the, in the frame of religious thinking. Mm. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it, um, so thank you for kind of explaining that, as you said, the dyad, uh, um, and sort of why we 
don't necessarily want to be sort of always within that frame and kind of thinking beyond that. And I'd therefore love to um, kind of ask you to go into a bit of your reading of Kant, um, because that is quite interesting and kind of sets up a lot of the rest of the book. So how can we productively or differently read Kant to think about political enthusiasm? Yeah, so a lot of this reading of Kant sort of centers on his late work. So I'm looking at Kant's thinking after the French Revolution has begun, after after the terror has has appeared, after the sort of excitement, but also the darkness that we might associate with the early historical um, characterizations of the French Revolution might be known to the sort of broader reading public. And and Kant is thinking about what's happening in France, and he's thinking about um, changes in in the republic and the idea of a republic and and what revolution can be. And and he's got this text on <clears throat> ostensibly on transformations of the university. This is a period when Kant himself is sort of caught up in politics and and sort of under threat by some of his beliefs, uh, given the changing uh, culture in in Prussian political life. And, and he writes this text on the conflict of the faculties, which seems at first glance like it's just a story about how else the university can be besides how it's been. And, and in short, how else it can be is it can be more philosophical as opposed to more theological. But, but when, when one digs a little deeper, uh, especially into um, some of the middle essays, it looks like Kant is actually sort of presenting us with some more nuanced narrative of a political life and not just academic life. And, and part in particular that fascinated me is this essay, uh, an, an old question raised again, is the human race constantly progressing? It, it's in this essay that we get Kant sort of reflecting on the French Revolution and, and what's happening and what it means to be a spectator of it from far away. That is, what it means to regard the French Revolution when one is not in France. And, and there, in particular, there's this opportunity to see Kant sort of struggling with what it means for him, not just as someone watching what is happening in France, but as someone who is imagining what else can happen in other places besides France. So there's this line that gets cited a lot in, in, in discussions around Kant and, and political enthusiasm that is worth sort of keeping in mind. He says that the recent revolution of a people which is rich in spirit may well either fail or succeed, accumulate misery and atrocity, it nevertheless arouses in the hearts of all spectators who are not themselves caught up in it, a taking of sides according to desires which border on enthusiasm. It's that line in particular that fascinates me because it could look like at first glance that Kant is just trying to offer us a sort of anxious account. When he looks from far away at what's happening in France, uh, he it's easy to get excited, so much so that he almost becomes enthusiastic. But I want us to sort of imagine that actually in that language itself, in this idea of being a spectator that is bordering on enthusiasm, that there's a way of sort of teasing out that um, something transformative is capable of happening. And that really what Kant is trying to present us with isn't the opportunity to capture and contain and secure a, a portrait from far away that we are safe from, but rather he is trying to sort of drag us mentally all the way to the edge of that revolution and to insinuate in us the possibility that there is an enthusiasm that could move us into a kind of politically transformative frame. 
That means, in a sense, reading Kant as far more revolutionary than he usually gets read. And this this isn't meant to be sort of political theory trapped in the historical imaginary. It's not meant to get Kant right as others have gotten it wrong. It's meant instead to, in a sense, say whether he intended it or not, there's an opportunity to read Kant as a seeding a kind of thinking, which I can imagine he himself would have been quite worried about doing. But that doesn't mean that it's not sort of there performing itself in, in the text that he presents us with. And so in that way, this, this text on, on the constant progression and a politics of constant progression, in order to tease out what that means, one has to invest in navigating this border of enthusiasm and what it means to cross that border and how how this text and and others in this tradition might help us to to cross that border and and why we might want to do that but also the risks we face in, in thinking that way about political life Mm, I think that's a really kind of um, important addition as well as sort of framing like what the intervention is that you're making, right? As you said, it's not about everyone else has always read Kant wrong. It's like, well, actually, there's this other way of thinking about it. But there are in like, there could be kind of some risk to that. Um, there is a, it, it's not kind of this obvious, you know, you're either right or wrong. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about in terms of the religious dyad. There's not sort of just the two ways that we're used to to thinking about it. Um which is, I think, really helpful. And so I'm wondering if you can, you, you already mentioned, obviously, that it's not just Kant, right? It's also a bunch of people kind of following after him, some of whom that we might be used to thinking of following after him, but not necessarily. Um, but Hannah Arendt does seem like the kind of obvious next person. Um, so how does she build on Kant in your reading to further investigate political enthusiasm and especially the role of spectators? Yeah, so I, I mean... In a way, um, Arendt is at the center of, of the project. And while Kant becomes the sort of vehicle to drive the project forward, uh, it's Arendt that I'm struggling with and Arendt that I'm really trying to make sense of. And, and what excites me most about Arendt's thinking around these topics, I mean, she's sort of pieces it together. We see it in different moments in her work, in her thinking on revolution, in her thinking on judgment. Um, She's trying to take seriously spectatorship as a kind of activity. And and I find that really exciting. But the part that sort of excites me or that I struggle with um, most and the part that that I think is important to consider with regards to the argument of the book is, is really not her thinking on spectatorship on its own, but in particular, the affects that might drive spectatorship. And, and especially, I, I think it's important to pay attention to her notion of relief. That is, if we look at something like the beginning of the human condition, where, where Arendt is asking us to consider a moment wherein we might have expected enthusiasm, awe, excitement, excitation, these kinds of affects. That is a political moment that could invite that. Uh, instead, we get something else. The moment she's thinking of is this moment of Sputnik and and the moment where human beings for the first time find themselves collectively in the experience of being able to imagine leaving planet Earth and and being outside of what has up until then been the center of human experience and interestiality. And, And their spectatorship is so caught up in the eventfulness of of this phenomena, that is, the eventfulness of, of becoming a spectator eventually on terrestrial Earth, that is, being able to escape from what this thing is. And, and what shocks Arendt, and what I think is so important for us to pay attention to in navigating the sort of economies of affect that 
that democratic politics in particular may depend on is that exactly at the moment when we might hope for human beings in a political framework to to have joy for a radical transformation, instead, so many characterize this moment as a moment of relief. That is, Sputnik and the feeling of being able to enter into outer space and leaving planet Earth is is characterized as an escape, as though it's an escape from imprisonment. And and there she shows us not so much like what enthusiasm is in itself, but rather what it means when there's an absence of enthusiasm or when we expect enthusiasm and we don't get it. That is, what goes wrong for us when we don't leave open the possibility of being able to feel enthusiasm is we end up sort of having a lot of effective space bound up in either sort of aversive emotions like disgust and shame and guilt, or even worse, in a kind of uh, perverse effective condition like relief. That is, it should shock us that in exactly a moment when a new beginning could be occurring, that it is characterized not as something new, but as something that is is bound up in what has already happened, bound up in our escape from that which we have already known. And and I think that that beginning of of her text on the human condition in particular is incredibly useful for being able to see the ways in which enthusiasm is so useful, but also how it has started to disappear and the dangers we might face in its disappearance from from the ways in which we can imagine ourselves as being political. Hmm. I I think that's, I I can see why that's something you wrestle with. (laughs) That's certainly not a a simple question um, that you bring up. So um, first off, I think kudos for kind of writing a book about it. (laughs) Um, But I, I wonder if you can kind of, I want to stay on this idea of sort of of time um, because you do raise that in the book. And I sort of have a few questions around time, but this idea of sort of the disappearing also kind of raises this thing around kind of when enthusiasm is experienced. And there's the idea of disappearing as you sort of talked about, but, but also kind of around um, with Sputnik, that example, the idea of kind of that relief, but also that moment of enthusiasm, the idea that it is a moment um, not necessarily lasting. And then there's also this idea of disappearing. So is political enthusiasm only ever a momentary experience? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm most taken with Wolin, Sheldon Wolin's thinking on, on the moment and momentary. So I guess I, I want to say my answer is yes. Enthusiasm is momentary, but what we mean by momentary um, it can become something different. That is, I worry that when we say enthusiasm is momentary or affect in general is momentary, that we're sort of deriding it. Like the things that we feel or the feelings that drive political life are 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 fleeting and and therefore not to be taken as seriously as sort of long-standing political institutions or institutions that preserve through time certainly those are valuable to political life but in a way they're valuable for preserving what has already instantiated itself and one of the things that enthusiasm can show us is a way in which a new politics could come about. And I think Wolin's so helpful here, partly by showing us, in a way, the temporality of a moment is not the same as the temporality of an instant. That is, when I say enthusiasm is momentary, I don't mean that it's instantaneous, that it's there and then it's gone. It can be like that. But for those who are within it, I think the moment can drag on into a kind of infinity. I mean, we see this in in good and bad ways. We see this 
when a crowd becomes committed to a particular cause and and the time frame of that excitement seems to be constant that is they seem to be constantly excited in favor of some some political goal it can also though i think be more ordinary that is i think it's possible to imagine that there are ways in which we can feel a sort of subtle constant enthusiasm in the long moment of our commitment to to certain politics i certainly think the contemporary moment of the climate crisis is an example where we may need to find a space for a sort of long moment of enthusiasm i'm quite anxious by by so much language that would either point us to sort of fear of a incoming an incoming catastrophe or the sort of future prospect of relief if only we can get to 2030 or 2050 and and we can make the sort of changes that would be necessary to to stave off the the fossil fuel crisis then everything everything will be okay and and we'll be able to return to normal we'll be able to feel relief and and that worries me i'd i'd rather see a kind of long moment of enthusiasm that is committed to to reimagining how humans might want to relate to to terrestrial earth and, and finding ways of becoming careful and, and and caretakers as opposed to sort of fantasizing about returning to a state where one didn't have to care anymore that to me that seems like an instance of of where enthusiasm could be incredibly useful and how it might be important to sort of replace languages of, of fear or relief. Does, does that, does that, am I getting closer to your mm-hmm. question? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and actually leads me really nicely into kind of something along the same lines I wanted to ask you about, which is around this idea of kind of fear and relief and going back to a thing and that um, potentially either using enthusiasm or ignoring enthusiasm and kind of creating problems. Um, and you talk about this in the book around the a, a rising hatred of democracy, um, which in some senses does seem to be part of this idea of kind of fear of wanting relief by going back to something. Um, and so I was wondering if you could kind of uh, sort of in the same way you've just talked about the climate crisis and how that relates to uh, political enthusiasm, how does this kind of um, rising hatred or frustration um, of democracy relate to this discussion on political enthusiasm? Yeah, so I mean, I think I think Jacques Rancière is really helpful and, and probably pretty regularly misread on this on exactly this question. I, I think what's so exciting about his reading of the hatred of democracy and why I think it belongs, like in this discourse on enthusiasm, has a, a lot to do with imagining democracy not as a kind of capturing of popular opinion or capturing of votes or securing political institutions in such a way that that one party rules over another or that even in the best sense there's an exchange of power between parties for him democracy appears in the sort of holding open of a resistance to any logic of capturing. I mean, he presents us with the most obvious discourses of capture. So uh, the fantasy that the the wise should rule in a polity or the wealthy should rule or the oldest should rule. These are fantasies uh, of domination that uh, in essence assert um, a kind of... Um, kind of desire to confirm ideologically that what one is is the is the truth of a particular political structure democracy then appears not as as the answer why one should rule but rather as the the resistance to answer and and just the asking of of instead how can we 
how can we share in war? How can we have a share in power? And enthusiasm, to my mind, seems to appear in that asking. That is, it appears in the sort of space where we don't give in to the fantasy of this one should rule over that one or the fantasy of um, justifications of, of closure and domination. And instead, we, we find ourselves in resistance to them. Again, that could be momentary. That is, it could be a moment of resistance to dominations, but it, it could also be a long moment. That is, I, it, I think there are instances from uh, the history of political protest, both recent and not so recent, but but also of sort of organizing generally that show us the possibility of of moving politics in a way that is not so concerned with claiming domination against and over someone else. And, and this idea of hatred in a way becomes crucial then because democracy depends on holding open a space against those hatreds. That's different than desiring an apathy and a democracy that would appear in an apathetic constituency. Instead, it's desiring, it's desiring contest and it's desiring a politics that appears in a fabric wherein many people think they should have a claim on that power, but there's enough force to sort of hold open the question as to how things should proceed. It's a very different way of imagining political life, and it, and it can't be the only way of imagining it, but at least part of what this book is trying to do is help us see how there may be really crucial moments in our contemporary world where we need to start to at least attune ourselves to that holding open that, that Ranciere introduces us to. Hmm. Tricky in a lot of ways. Um, but again, in keeping with the rest of this of untangling complex ideas and looking at things in new ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it certainly becomes hard to imagine why one would want to commit oneself um, to a politics that didn't foreclose upon someone else. I mean, if you see – that is, I don't mean to suggest this is a politics of inaction, and that's the sort of, for me, the difficult part. How does one link up enthusiasm with 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 action and activity without that action and activity becoming bound up in a logic of domination. Um, and and the book tries to thread that, but but it's a hard question to thread. So mm. well and so I'd I'd love to kind of um stay on that in a way because the, the idea of domination um goes in a lot of ways hand in hand with ideas of sort of fascism. Um, and fanaticism or fascist fanaticism as it were um, and this is something that you show in the book uh, is not alien to debates about enthusiasm um, so I'm wondering if you can maybe kind of tell us about you know to what extent is it useful to draw lines between enthusiasm and fanaticism how can we understand fascism in this context kind of you know make it even trickier for us <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I think it's hard because we often, in at least in contemporary discourse, want to blend fascism and fanaticism together. Um, but I think I, I think there's good historical evidence to show that it's there are other modes of of fanaticism that that we we might want to imagine are useful to democratic life uh, in positive ways. So, I mean, the most obvious example sort of building on the late Joel Olson's reflection on this is the role that fanaticism played in, in the abolitionist movement in, in the, in the 19th century in the United States. I mean, you see many abolitionists 
claiming themselves to be democratic fanatics and, and having to commit themselves sort of f- fully in their body and in their mind and in their heart, uh, in their defense of a kind of democracy that doesn't have a space for slavery. That seems very far away from the sort of manifestations uh, of blindness that we see in, in in fascist politics, either in the beginning of the 20th century or or in in the Trump era in in the 21st century, and in that sense, it, it's almost as though uh, fascism pretends fanaticism. Uh, but it relies on a sort of a, an excited apathy, like a, a buried apathy towards the possibilities of how else politics could be. I think in a way, fascism gives up on the question, how else can politics be? And instead has decided uh, on a particular figuration of domination. And so in that sense, both enthusiasm and fanaticism should be able to be directed against against the fascist. I think fanaticism is a, it's a difficult it's a difficult concept and one that appears sort of problematically in the book. So it's not just it's not just Kant that becomes the opening question for how do we start to think about political enthusiasm in new ways, but but uh, this this essay question. Um, from this journal in, in the late 18th century, the sort of there's this regular practice of having these essay contests. What, what do we mean by enlightenment? What do we mean by enthusiasm? And in particular, this question that that Christoph Martin Wieland asked of of how do we distinguish between enthusiasm and fanaticism? And and for him, the implication being that enthusiasm is obviously good and fanaticism is obviously bad. That dyad is something I'm trying. I'm trying to avoid, but but there's a way in which his question sort of raises for us an important an important point. That is, it's not impossible to distinguish enthusiasm and fanaticism. One of the things I think I'm excited about in, in this book, and and especially the ways in which Walter Benjamin and Jacques Ranciere might help us think about enthusiasm, is they help us see the ways in which enthusiasm and fanaticism can come together and then move apart again. And and it's that motion that I think is also really crucial because it's not just enthusiasm that would allow a democratic polity to, I think, resist rising fascist tendencies, but, but it may require a kind of democratic fanaticism precisely to encounter to fanaticism at certain points. And, and then it becomes an open political question, like when is enthusiasm not enough and what kinds of mobilizations might be necessary in order to resist something like fascism, which would mean the collapse of democratic life generally. Hmm. So how then can enthusiasm be used to prevent democracies from becoming fascist? To what extent is that possible and what might that look like? I mean, I think... Enthusiasm helps engender an attention to new beginnings and to new ways in which political life can be experienced and can transform. And so opening ourselves up to that language uh, creates a space where democratic polities and democratic citizens and members of those polities will start to become attuned to new possibilities. Uh, fascism, to my mind, seems to depend on foreclosing that newness. Even, even as it presents the sort of fantasy of unity, it's always a fantasy of unity that has always been and, and could now be secured. And, and enthusiasm, just to my mind, seems much more attuned to to new beginning, the sort of natality of activity that that Arendt in particular is so interested in articulating. So paying attention to that affect is really part of part of the project of the book. It's trying to say that until we start to open up a space for ourselves in political life where we are willing to feel enthusiastic and, and not give in to dominations, either our own dominations over others or 
or the dominations that might exude from others upon us, enthusiasm can help us pay attention to when those are being enacted and and sort of attune us to new possibilities that that might belie themselves in our political lives. Hmm. Very interesting. I think lots of food for thought, um, certainly obviously for yourself, but I think for a lot of us um, reading and listening to this of thinking about, okay, hang on, how could this, what could this look like? Um, what is that balance? Um, and I don't suppose you have any clear answers on that because who could, maybe, maybe who knows, maybe that will be the next book. Um, I'm sure I'll ask you about that in a second. Um, but I guess as we come kind of to the end of um, the interview, obviously, um, you, you talked at the beginning about how this was very much kind of a process um, coming up with the book and thinking through these things. Um, and I think that's true of probably most good books, most good research. Um, and we've talked a little bit about kind of some of the things that you're still grappling with and some of the new readings and the implications of them. But I wonder if there was anything in particular that as you were going through the process of researching this, thinking about it, etc., um, was there anything that particularly surprised you? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of things. A lot of things got got left out of the book um, just to make it sort of a manageable read uh, in in the contemporary discussions around affect and and protest and and democracy. But um, I mean, from from my perspective, I think the thing that continued uh, that continued to surprise me were the ways in which um, the ways in which enthusiasm seems to be perceived as anti-democratic. That is the way in which um, so much of at least liberal democratic political life seems caught up in political rationality as as its touchstone. And I, I think from a political theory perspective, there's there's certainly a lot of a lot of theorists that are worried about that as the only fabric. Um, but enthusiasm in particular seems like it's it raises that anxiety. So as you said at the beginning, this idea of the mob, the idea of sort of frenzied uh, political engagement, um, that is certainly terrifying. I mean, we don't have to look very far back to January 6th to to see something that would get characterized as enthusiastic. I just think that's a mistake. To, To think about something like January 6th as political enthusiasm mischaracterizes it and sort of leaves a democratic polity thinking, well, I don't, if that's enthusiasm, I don't, I don't want to be that. And, and so I need to be like, um, it sort of incentivizes a sort of bureaucratic logic It incentivizes closures and it incentivizes a sort of like pale political rationality, which I think leads to that apathy again, uh, and and from my perspective, it's that apathy that's that's dangerous. In a way, January sixth to me looks apathetic. It's just excited apathy, and it, that is not like a portrait of a new beginning. It's it's a portrait of the end of democracy, if anything. I want to ask you a little bit about that. How does it? This idea of excited apathy. Why does it look that way to you rather than enthusiastic? Well, so much of what I think has been presented in in the recent Senate hearings and and what one sees in in discourse uh, in the rising tide of the fascist right in the United States is is language that, at least at first gloss, sounds like. Um, sounds like exhaustion. It sounds like um, a resentment of how things have become and an exhaustion for what 
the contemporary climate is, but the the resolution of that exhaustion and and sort of the loss of the feeling of spirit isn't isn't the desire to to begin anew, but rather the the fantasy of of destroying parts or holding on to um, certain dominations that had been mobilizing before and sort of using them to remobilize. And, and in that way, I think we mistake it as enthusiasm. We mistake it as something that is excitement. And if we don't sort of build up a vocabulary that allows us to see that awe is different from excitation, which is different from fanaticism, which is different from enthusiasm, when we collapse all of those together, then then we find ourselves looking and seeing sort of riotous mob activity as as the same thing as abolitionist resistance to to slavery or or to the police uh, and to police domination in the contemporary moment, um, or or to those protest movements which would ask us to to reconsider how else democratic politics could be, and and I think lumping all of those together just doesn't make sense. And finding a way to to pay close attention to the subtleties of of feeling and affect and how they frame democratic political life, I think can, can help us sort of open up, open up those new spaces for change, but also pay attention to ways in which we can, we can enact critique on, on anti-democratic forces. Does that make sense? That not only makes sense, that's a fabulous um, sort of call to read your book, right? That, that's <laughs> in a lot of ways quite a great encapsulation of exactly what you're doing, of stopping us from lumping those things together and instead picking them apart and kind of picking them up and looking at them and going, okay, hang on a second. You know, what happens when we untangle um, these things that have been perhaps artificially smushed together um, and kind of see what the spaces and options are that that examination um, allows us to uncover? And I think that's pretty much exactly what your book um, is really looking at and trying to do. So I think that's a pretty good place to kind of end the interview in a way um, with that sort of wonderful summary of um, what you've done. Um, but kind of with that term, you've done it. The book is out. Uh, obviously, <laughs> you're not stopping thinking about it, but the book itself is released out into the world, which must mean, what are you working on now or next? Yeah, so um, certainly these questions of of um, fascism and, and abolition are, are sort of right at the front of my mind. And um, one of the things that I became interested in, uh, sort of towards the end of that that last stage when you're writing a book and you've already it's already left your desk and it keeps coming back because the editors keep asking you to to do the index or, or to to make these changes. I mean. In that period, um, a lot of my a lot of my thinking was sort of caught up in the contemporary abolitionist movement, and so my next project is is sort of taking this this enthusiasm um, and and looking at it in a particular instantiation and imagining what happens to political institutions when this enthusiastic politics like presents itself, and so. Um, this project is I'm just I'm calling it right now democracy without police and and it's looking at the abolition of the police um, in in a broad context that's considering on the one hand sort of what policing is as an institution how it's how it's evolved and and what it would mean to be without it and paying real close attention to the, the absencing of police uh, in, in different um, historical moments and, and fictive uh, and theoretical texts to, to try to tease out if there is a space for democracy in, in the without of police, what would, what would that look like? How would democracy be? And, and, and 
what would happen to policing if it was sort of severed from from democratic politics. So clearly you're moving from this project to something really simple with one clear answer. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Well, that sounds like an absolutely fascinating project. So hopefully if it does result in a book, you'll come back and tell us about it. Um, definitely, definitely. Great. Well, but while you are off um, researching that, uh, listeners can read the book that we have been talking about, which as a reminder is titled Political Enthusiasm, Partisan Feeling and Democracy's Enchantments from Manchester University Press in 2022. Dr. Andy Poe, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.